0: promise. Hello everyone, I am Paul and I will be hosting today's episode of Christ is the Cure. It only seemed appropriate to do an episode on faith after having done two on repentance. As I hope all the listeners know by now, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. So much of what could be said in this episode would simply be a repetition of the episodes on repentance that I did. Having said that, this will not be a very long episode. I myself have sometimes asked, in the context of justification, what is faith? Like, can you put a finger on it? What is this that we refer to as a means to grab a hold of Christ and his work for us? How does this trust work to impute what Christ has done to our account? What does it do and how how does it do what it does? I've asked myself, Those questions many times, and I've never come to a definitive answer. Uh, Making an episode on historical theology of faith is not really possible. I I would have liked to do one because uh, of the one on on repentance. We did an episode on on historical theology of repentance before the, the doctrinal theology of repentance, but that would be impossible for faith because it is a term that involves much more than a term like repentance. Repentance could be described as the negative side of the coin that has repentance and faith as its two faces. Repentance is about abandoning our past selves, and faith is about embracing Christ and the new life that is found in Him. One is about laying off, and the other is about putting on. I would love to do a biblical survey of faith, as demonstrated by historical persons like Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Moses and many, many more, but that would not be a definition of faith, although it greatly helps to illustrate it. So that's not what we're going to be doing today. Just like we saw in the episode on theology of repentance, faith also has an effect on the intellect, emotions, and the will. This is sometimes expressed as knowledge or data, consent or agreement, and embracement or trust. Saving faith has been historically defined with the Latin terms notitia, census, and fiducia. So that's where we're going to camp for this episode. Now let's begin by knowledge, which is arguably the most basic element of faith. So in, in today's culture, which is philosophically dominated by relativistic humanism and empiricism, faith is seen as diametrically opposed to knowledge. It is mockingly understood as a leap into the darkness, wishful, superstitious thinking, intellectual suicide, and a suspension of rational thought. Faith is seen as something only fit for ignorant people who need help but don't quote-unquote trust in science. This is a caricature a straw man against the biblical concept of faith and hope. The Bible never teaches us to take a blind leap of faith and put our trust in something that we have no idea about. Instead, it pushes us to know the truth, to plead with God so that He may show us the truth. True faith is based upon true knowledge, based on biblical truth. The scriptures present faith as knowledge in many places. Like, for example, in Galatians 2.16, which reads, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. If you pay attention there, Paul begins by saying, yet we know. That verse is clearly referring to intellectual data, and he then compares that with belief. The reason the believer can know that works do not justify a person is because Jesus lived a perfect life of works and gave it up so that his perfect life could cover our imperfect lives. That is a propositional truth, and it has to be known in the mind. Instead of drawing contrasts between faith and knowledge, Scripture almost makes them equivalent, and we see that in passages like Romans 6, 8-9, 2 Corinthians four thirteen through 14 and 1 Peter 5, 9. Now let's read each one of them. Let's begin by Romans. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. There we see belief and knowledge being compared and made almost equivalent. Then in 2 Corinthians, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, Quote, I believe, and so I spoke, So we also believe, and so we also speak, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, And bring us with you into his presence. And finally, 1 Peter 5, verse 9, Resist him, Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Faith and knowledge, or the intellect, are not enemies. The Bible speaks about faith being grounded on true knowledge, not being void of knowledge, or the claim that faith is wishful thinking, pie in the sky, or as atheists love to ridicule us by referring to God blasphemously as the flying spaghetti monster, and they will be judged for such blasphemy, because they know better. They know that God exists, but they don't trust Him nor His words. So the subject of notitia, or data, is used to summarize the contents of the Christian faith. Anytime that the Bible calls us to believe, it gives us propositional truth afterwards. This proposition can be rejected as false, or assented to as truth, although such assent does not guarantee regeneration or salvation, which is something I will repeat over and over again in this episode. To provide a few examples, this content involves accepting the fact that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, that he is one with the Father, that he is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and Son of God, That he lived a perfect human life, being like us in every way except concerning a sinful nature, or any sinful act, in thought or deed. That he gave this perfect life as the only substitute for any man, an offering to God on the cross of Calvary. And that he rose from the dead on the third day. I I always second, I, I, I catch myself with Calvary, I sometimes confuse it as cavalry. So, uh, he died on on the cross and rose from the dead on the third day, proving that all he said is true and having the seal of approval from the Father, giving testimony that he was satisfied with the offering of Christ and justifying him in the eyes of his accusers as innocent and worthy. The Apostle Paul expounds on all of this in Romans 1-11, through 11, as all of you probably know. In the last chapter of this exposition by Paul, he writes that it is impossible to believe in the gospel without first hearing it. This involves the data that that is being transmitted through words, and the words of the gospel convey information that is factual and historical, and it should be understood and embraced as such. If rejection of any of these happens, then that is lacking uh, the area of assent, and, and the person has uh, soundly rejected, I mean not soundly, but uh, foolishly, that would be a better word, foolishly rejected the gospel. So the second point is the assent that the person must give to the information provided. Even if the person knows the data of the gospel in assent to his veracity, this is still not enough. We know of countless theologians, preachers, and even pastors who have claimed to embrace the Christian faith, yet reject integral aspects of it. Several modern pastors have shunned the virgin birth of Christ, the reliability of the scriptures, the resurrection of Christ, the judgment of God, creationism, the miracles of Jesus, and many more. Other pastors and theologians have embraced woke ideology that prompts them to set aside sound biblical teaching in order to further their ideological agenda. Then we also have other people who have heard the truths of the Bible and have even been raised in Christian families and have been surrounded by the light of Scripture, yet they still reject the truths of the Bible. Or in many other cases, they give hearty assent to them, but it does not change their lives. I know many people like this. These truths do not become the source and fountain of their minds. I personally believe the latter group of these will suffer an extremely harsh judgment i have close relatives that, that know every truth of the gospel but they do not embrace them although they do give assent to them they believe them and they they claim to to hold to them yet it doesn't it's clear by their lives that it doesn't change them they don't embrace it they fail to repent and they fail to put their trust in these truths The intellectual aspect of faith is there, and there might even be some emotional reaction to the content of the faith, but the will does not embrace them. It takes too much to believe them. Too many sacrifices are involved. The beauty of Christ is not seen, as Satan blinds the eyes of faith and darkens the mind and the heart. The pleasures the world offers surpass what God has to offer in the minds of of these people. I was one of them and I sh- I'm absolutely sure that you were also. So the instances where the intellect comprehends and the emotions are touched but the will remains immovable is a perfect illustration of the parable of the sower. The seed sprouts but the thorns choke it out and, and it dies. The world is too valuable for these people to renounce it and the cares of the world and of the sage end up choking and killing the seed. It does not go deep enough. In order for the seed to grow, the heart must gladly assent to the information provided as it sees the surpassing worth of Christ and the utter garbage that this world has to offer in comparison. The truth must be known, and it must be believed. Assent must be granted. The person must recognize that what he or she is hearing is the truth, and whatever differs from this is a lie assent can also be described as a type of certainty or assurance the one explicit definition of faith given in the bible is found in hebrews 11 verse 1 and it uses the words the word sorry assurance now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen and t- Interestingly enough, the word "sureness" here is translated from the from the Greek "hypostasis," which many it may ring a bell to many of you regarding the the Chalcedonian doctrine of Christ's hypostatic union, which is the term used to declare Christ's two natures united in one per, in one person. This word is really confusing historically because it went through several different meanings thanks to greek philosophers and christian debate after that and it, and the word itself being used by heretics also the prefix hypo or hypo as it would be said uh, pronounced in english means under and stasis can be translated as to stand so hypostasis In this context, as it is translated as assurance, can mean to stand under. It's probably referring to a foundation upon which something is built. It seems that this verse from Hebrews refers to a supernatural certainty, and it takes us through various historical characters that walked by faith. This begins with creation, which had no witnesses other than the Trinity who created everything that is. It appears that angels were not even there to see God's creative power. So, how do we know God made all things? The answer is by faith, by trusting in God's own words about how he made everything that exists. We have this assurance that God made all things because we stand under the authority of his word and place our trust there. Even though we did not see the creation of the world, we believe it happened the way God tells us it happened. Abel is said to have offered his accepted sacrifice by faith, and we can see how it was by faith when we realized that there were no ceremonial laws to guide Abel to provide a pleasing sacrifice to God. He did so by faith. Not sure if any of you have heard this, but it is said by some theologians that rain did not fall until Noah's time, until the flood. Maybe that explains why the text reads, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Noah did not see the flood coming, but he had the assurance that came from God himself that it would. So, trusting God, he built the ark. Abraham, who was literally a nobody, he was a fatherless pagan worshiper way east of the land of Canaan. But one night, he was called by the true God to leave everything and to head to the west, to the land of Canaan. And so he did, by faith. In the same way, Abraham offered up Isaac, trusting that God would not fail in his promise and would, and would have to raise Isaac from the dead if necessary. So he shows how he walked, by faith, by faith. Also with Moses, as stubborn as he was when, he, when God first called him, he went by faith to face Pharaoh and called all the plagues upon Egypt. By faith he led Israel into the wilderness, trusting that God would provide for them, although he could not see that. We could go all through Hebrews 11, but the point is, assenting to the propositional truths in the Bible is not enough. Abraham could have agreed with God and assented to what he heard from him, but that did not guarantee action from his part. He could have not gone to the land of Canaan. He could have stayed there in, in Ur of the Chaldeans. He could have not offered up Isaac on Mount Moriah. He could have just said, no, I, I, I want to keep my son, my only son. But he did so by faith. He worked out his faith, we could say. And the same is true of every other character found in Hebrews 11. Ascent to the truth of the gospel involves an acknowledgement that we cannot rid ourselves from our sin and its inevitable judgment. We need Jesus and his atoning work. Nothing else will save us. Nothing else will satisfy our souls. Sadly, as noted before, recognizing these things as true does not make one saved. And the last point we will touch upon is the area of trust also known for its latin term fiducia all these saints from hebrews 11 knew the truth and they assented to it but it was more than that they embraced it they acted upon it and lived lived their lives in the light of these truths faith must go through the knowledge to the ascent but it mon- it must not stop there It must go all the way to willfully and consciously rely on christ for the forgiveness of sin and the salvation of the individual john murray in his well-known book redemption accomplished and applied wrote and i quote faith is knowledge passing into conviction and it is conviction passing into confidence "...faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ, a transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources, to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. It is a receiving and resting upon Him." Quote. So the fiducia aspect of faith moves from assent to a trusting dependence, a loving embrace. To have a mental picture of how the three levels of faith work, let's head over to Philippians 3 where Paul takes us through a theological journey of his own salvation experience, one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament. In verse 3, Paul speaks of Christians as those who put no confidence in the flesh. And we know that Paul had done this in his life as a Pharisee where he had plenty of reason to misplace his trust in his own works and identity as a Jew. The Apostle was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He fulfilled every requirement every requirement asked of him, and not always by God. We know that the, that the Jews by then had many ceremonial laws which were not found in the Bible. Paul also checked every social and cultural box that his milieu demanded. He, con- he, he consented gladly to every ritual that religion commanded. He was devoted and sincere in his beliefs and practice. As we know from from Romans 7. But in verse 7 of Philippians 3, we read, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is a wonderful illustration of saving faith. All of the credentials that Paul had as a Pharisee ended up being nothing when confronted with the light of Christ. He counted it all as garbage so he could attain the knowledge of Christ, which surpasses all things. Paul had turned away from himself, he had repented, and had now embraced Christ after having intellectually and emotionally rejected him for a long time, and very violently at that. The trusting aspect of faith does not only receive forgiveness of sins, as we see here from Paul. It's not only about forgiveness of sins and the imputed righteousness of Christ. And we must not think of these things as as if they were abstract or ethereal. This dependent trust receives Christ himself, as he himself is our forgiveness and righteousness. Faith receives him as a treasure to be prized over all things. Saving faith is not merely an escape from judgment, and it doesn't rely on Christ simply as a scapegoat from hell. As he is presented many times in some evangelistic encounters, it rather embraces an entire person. And the new life revolves around this person. Christ is Lord of anyone who has trusted in him and repented of their sins. Romans 6 is crystal clear on this. Obedience to Jesus as Lord is fruit of the will, embracing Christ in faith. So, in the beginning of the episode, two questions were asked. Questions that I've asked myself constantly. What is faith, and how does faith work? That, of course, cannot be answered in an empirical way. So, with the volitional aspect of faith, we learn that trust in Christ is paramount, but we don't only trust in Him, we entrust ourselves to Him. I've never been a fan of these analogies, and I don't know why, but I, I bet you all have heard Ray Comfort doing some evangelism. He always talks about a parachute and a falling plane, and how, how one must not only trust that the parachute will save you, but how you also have to use the parachute and somehow entrust yourself to the parachute's saving ability. We do the same thing every time we put on our seatbelt before driving a car, or when we take any kind of medicine to soothe the pain or any other malady. We are somehow entrusting ourselves to those things at the same time as we are trusting in them. So with saving faith, we entrust ourselves to Christ, to His goodness and mercy as Savior, to His counsel and wisdom as Lord, and as the captain of our eternity and our souls. So what is faith? I would say it is giving oneself to Christ, falling into His arms with complete trust that He is the one who can take us to the Father, forgive our sins, and make us righteous now and forever. And as explained before, this faith is a living faith. It works itself out, but not independently of us in our willful, fervent effort. And will, will this be constant? Of course not. Hebrews 11, which some refer to as the Hall of Faith, kind of a cringy term for it, but I guess it works. Hebrews 11 is full of imperfect believers who failed time and again. Their faith wavered, their desires were not always in line with God, and their heart was not always steadfast. But the important thing is that God's heart toward them was. He remains faithful even when we don't. He is eternally perfect and never wavers. Hebrews 11 also relates how every saint there listed obeyed God by faith. Obedience is not contrary to faith. I believe that such a manner of thinking is an overreaction against the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation. Faith is, in itself, obedience to the command of God to believe upon His Son. And genuine faith will always produce works, not in the same consistency in everyone, but it will always be evidenced in works. And the other question, how does faith work? It works by living it out, by working at it in fear and trembling, not out of a fear of losing it, but out of a fear of the wonderful God before whom mountains, planets and stars tremble. This God who sustains all that exists, without breaking a single drop of sweat, decided to save you and I. This God who came down in fire and darkness at Sinai, this God of whom Israel was terrified that He might kill them with His presence, thought of you and of me, and was pleased to crush His eternal Son for us. That is why He is to be feared. This God is also not capricious. He isn't needy, he does not demand things in exchange for something, he only asks us to trust in his provision. The credit belongs to him, and he loves us too much for us to make an idol out of ourselves or out of any other creature. That is why faith works by trusting God, trusting that only he could achieve such a feat as salvation. Reliance upon him gives him all due honor and glory. Any other way of salvation would end up in egocentric futility. And that would not be salvation. It would just be another curse. I guess that's a good place to wrap it up. Thank you everyone for listening to this wonderful podcast and for supporting this ministry. God bless you.